0: Before the movie rolls on, we here at the Golden Silence Podcast would like to shout out the Pittsburgh Silent Film Society. The PSFS was founded in 2013 to help foster and promote silent film exhibition with live musical accompaniment in Pittsburgh and throughout Western Pennsylvania. To find out more and see upcoming silent film programs, please visit www.pittsburghsilentfilmsociety.org or find them on Facebook. Tiny bubbles in the wine make me happy, make me feel fine. Tiny bubbles make me warm all over, with the feeling that I'm going to love you till the end of time. A great song by the legendary Don Ho that accurately reflects my feelings about today's episode, Wings. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Golden Silence Podcast. Your boarding passes have been taken, and your belongings can safely be stowed away in this theater's convenient overhead bins. As we give you your pre-flight instructions, please be aware that today's in-flight entertainment will be the classic silent World War I extravaganza, Wings. Before we take off, let's swing by the social media hangouts of the Golden Silence Podcast. As always, follow Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this podcast, and for everyone on Twitter, just follow at GoldenSilence1, or just search for GoldenSilenceCast, and we will be there. At both of these social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episodes, and other fun and cool silent movie-related information. You may also get some pictures of Gizmo and Soda, the official Golden Silence podcasts. Also, if you're listening to this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave a review, a rating, or both. All of those ratings and reviews help a ton, from helping the show get more exposure to letting us know what we are doing, good or bad. And we appreciate it and want to put on the best show for all of you. We are back for the fourth episode of Season 2, and overall Episode 17. This is a special one. If you're listening to this episode at the time of release, that means we actually did our job and put out an episode at a special time to coincide with the real world. By that, I mean the Academy Awards are about to go down. So that being said, it seemed only appropriate that we take a dive into the first movie to ever win an Oscar for Best Picture. Before getting too deep in movie time, let's bring back a feature of earlier Golden Silence podcast episodes that we haven't done in a while. So, Wings was released in 1927, which made me wonder what was going on in the movie world in 1927. So looking back on the events of 1927, we're going to start on January 10th, 1927, when Fritz Lang's legendary silent classic, and one of my top five movies of all time, Metropolis, was released in Germany. One day later, on January 11th, Louis B. Mayer, head of MGM Film Studio, announces the creation of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences at a banquet in Los Angeles, California. February 19th would see the release of silent comedy It, starring Clara Bow. This film would help popularize the concept of the It Girl and really make Clara Bow a star. On May 11th, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was officially founded, ushering in an era of little golden statue men honoring cinematic excellence. And we'll end this time travel with some sad news. Marcus Lowe, business magnate and motion picture pioneer, died on September 5th, 1927. He founded the Lowe's Theater chain and helped form the MGM Film Studio. So with our little time travel out of the way, let's talk about what version of the film we watched when working on this episode of the podcast. Because this is a big time movie, it seemed right to get the best version possible. That would come in the Blu-ray version. While it's not a special edition or anything, the disc has some pretty cool video quality and rad, rad, rad special features. Like I said, the visual fidelity is fantastic. In the course of watching silent films for business and pleasure, I come across a lot of bad quality pictures, so when something like this version of Wings comes along, it is a special treat. It's gorgeous and can't be recommended enough. And I was able to get it on Amazon at the time, it was very cheap, it was under 10 bucks. So I highly recommend if you wanna see this movie in its best quality, if it's, if, it, if it's still there and still on sale, do get it, it's, it's totally worth it. On top of the great picture quality, it has a few special features really which are really fun and informative. But there is one featurey type thing that I'll wanna bring up for this movie. It is that it has two audio tracks to choose from. The first track is a traditional organ music as it may have sounded back in the day. This pipe organ score was composed and performed by Gaylord Cater. The other option is more interesting than something I've never seen before. So when the movie was originally released, it actually had sound effects. Well, sort of. You see, in many theaters, wings would be played with live organ music like most movies of the time. In other theaters, though, the organ would be played as normal, but there would be the sounds of gunfire, explosions, etc. recorded that played alongside the film and the live music being played. And on this Blu-ray, one of the audio options is hearing that secondary track of sound effects, and it is a super cool way to experience this massive and intense war film. This track had a re-recorded score composed by J.S. J. Zamanchik and was orchestrated and arranged by Dominic Hauser, which featured pianist Frederick Hodges. And those sound effects I was talking about were done by the great Ben Burt. Now that the episode has reached cruising altitude, you are now free to move about the podcast with biography service beginning shortly. And by shortly, I mean now. The first person we're going to dive into here is the captain of this ship, William A. Wellman. To describe his life in any detail would turn this podcast into an epic tale in and of itself. It's filled with thrills and chills, action and adventure. And honestly, for pure action and wild adventure, it might even eclipse the movie in parts. And normally I wouldn't push such hyperbole, but every once in a while the truth is not hyperbolic. He really was a legit contender for a most interesting man in the world. So let's just do this. He was born William Augustus Wellman on February 29, 1896 in Brookline, Massachusetts, to a middle-class family. As a young man, he became known as something of a young hellion who would get arrested and expelled from school in separate incidences. During his teen years, Woman often found himself at, found himself at odds with authorities. He was expelled from Newton High School in Newtonville, Massachusetts. He was also arrested and placed on probation for car theft. Later, the young man worked a series of odd jobs with nothing catching his interest for long. By 1915, he had decided to take his ambitions to the skies and become an aviator. He soon left the States to join up with the flying French via the air wing of the French Foreign Legion. During World War I, Wellman was flying in and all over France, taking to the skies in all different types of planes and experiencing World War I from behind and on the front lines. All of his planes would carry the name of Celia in honor of his beloved mother. This will mark the first mention of this episode of the book, The Man and His Wings, William A. Wellman and the Making of the First Best Picture, written by his son, William Wellman Jr. This is a fantastic book. Setting aside the making of wings, this book gives first-hand accounts of Wellman's time in France during World War I. Wellman Jr. collects a huge number of letters and correspondence from his father to his family back home. These really take you into what it was like for a young airman and the conditions he lived in. While serving in France, Wellman would receive the quad de Guerre with two palms, each palm serving as a marker of an additional quad de Guerre. For a good chunk of the time he flew in the French Foreign Legion, he was the only American. As we talk about in the movie, you'll see a lot of Wellman's experiences, or reasonable facsimiles thereof, make it to the screen as we follow Jack Powell. One of my favorite stories from this part of Wellman's life was one night, he and another pilot, Tom Hitchcock, would ring church bells with their planes. The pilots would swoop down super low in the small town, shoot the church's bell, while at the same time stalling out the plane just long enough to hear the bell ring, then restart the plane and fly off. You know, just some good-natured pranks. It wasn't all fun and shenanigans, though. The war was hard on Wellman, while in France he would lose many people close to him. His first wife, a French woman, died in a bomb attack and his close friend Tom Hitchcock would be shot down in battle. Despite all his accolades, William Wellman Jr. gives us a glimpse into the hard end of his father's flying, French flying career. Wellman Jr. writes, On March 21st, 1919, while on solo patrol, Wellman was shot from the skies by anti-aircraft guns over the Forest de Paras. His Newport crashed into the treetops. He was thrown from the cockpit, and as he fell to the ground, he clung to the boughs of a tree before sliding down before the wrecked Celia 5. But that wasn't the worst of it, Wellman Jr. continues. French soldiers rescued him and took him to the hospital. He was partially paralyzed, suffering from moments of blackout. There was internal bleeding. His back was broken in two places. The control stick of his plane had been forced through the roof of his mouth, and a piece of shrapnel was embedded in his nose, an eighth of an inch from his eye. But good luck lay beside him, for he had escaped death. Some weeks would pass before the young woman returned home. He was treated as a celebrity and returning hero. Parades, parties, and all manner of public engagements flooded the life of the young airman. He even got a heartfelt meeting with former President Teddy Roosevelt. All this extravagance left the flyboy idling with no real direction in life. He just yearned for the skies and to be away from the hoopla. Though his run in warfare was over, Wellman's connection to aviation was far from over. Wellman was convinced to join the US Army Air Corps, commissioned as an officer and stationed at Rockwell Field in San Diego, California, teaching combat fighting tactics to new pilots. Though getting back into the service would prove difficult for the injured airman, however. But like everything Wild Bill did, he survived and pushed ahead. I mean, when you think about it, Wellman was like Star Trek's Captain Kirk of his time, confident, lucky, and a solution to everything. If the no-win scenario Kobayashi Maru test were a real thing, I don't doubt for a second that Wild Bill would beat it. His bad back was holding him back though. He was told he would never fly again and that his best hope would be to join the Signal Corps. But a friend of his in the service was able to pull a few strings and Wilman left his physical a first lieutenant on his way to Rockwell Field in San Diego, California. While connected to aviation, a life of teaching people to fly could never really live up to the thrill and excitement of battle. True, it was a safer line of work for the the future director, but the lack of excitement only brought boredom. A bit of spice would be thrown his way when he was invited to a snazzy Hollywood party. There he met actress Helene Chadwick. Not too long after meeting, the two would tie the knot in a secret ceremony in Riverside, California. With his wife filming on location and boredom rearing its head, Wellman turned to an old cablegram he received upon his heroic return home. That cablegram came from Hollywood star Douglas Fairbanks, and it read, Great work, boy. We are proud of you. When you get home, there is a job waiting for you. This all sets up another amazing story from William Wellman Jr.'s book, and it talks about the first real-life meeting of Wellman and Fairbanks. And this brings back some airborne daring do back into our story. So again, with a wife out of town and spare time on his hands, Wellman found out Fairbanks was hosting a big outdoor Hollywood party with polo, a buffet, two outdoor bars, And the guest list included some of the biggest names in Hollywood. I mean, you had Chaplin, Lloyd, Keaton, Valentino, and Pickford were just a few of the A-list names. Wellman Jr. goes on to explain what happened next. And trust me, this is pretty awesome. The sound of a loud airplane engine caused the celebrities to look skyward. A silver spat at maximum speed, 132 miles per hour, with First Lieutenant William Wellman at the controls descended on the attentive gathering. Attitude swung from concern to fright as the plane dove at the now scattering mob. It buzzed over their heads, causing some of the polo ponies to skitter and rear up, and some of the guests to run for protection of their umbrellas. The SPAD performed a few special stunts before returning for another by. Wellman pulled back on the throttle, slowing his plane to landing speed. The SPAD glided down to a smooth, perfect landing at the far end of the field and away from the startled horses. Wellman Jr. continues, The plane taxied to a stop some 60 yards from the astonished audience. The pilot unhooked his harness and stepped from the cockpit. Dressed in his best blue uniform with three sets of wings, ribbons, and medals, he limped toward the amazed celebrities. All eyes followed him towards Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. I know that was a long quote, but it's a great story and tells you a lot about Wild Bill Wellman. That's an insane first impression to make, right? So with that fateful meeting, Wellman was able to leave the skies and turn his attention to the silver screen. His first role was with Fairbanks in 1919's The Knickerbock Buckaroo, a western that got him $250 a week. After his second role in 1919's Evangeline, Wellman decided to give give up on being an actor. The tough-as-nails World War I hero couldn't deal with seeing himself on screen. Literally, the act of seeing himself on screen made him ill. Though acting wasn't for him, he wasn't giving up on Hollywood, though. Wellman took his concerns to Fairbanks, who asked him what he wanted to do. Wellman said he wanted to direct. While Fairbanks couldn't make that happen right away, he was able to get him started. As a messenger boy. The aspiring director gave up a $400 a week paycheck in exchange for a $22 a week paycheck as a messenger boy. He delivered the mail to the studio stars, including his now ex-wife, Helene Chadwick. But Wellman paid his dues and continued moving up the ladder. Within three years, he was working regularly as an assistant director under eight different directors over the course of 20 pictures. By the time Wellman took the helm of Wings in 1927, he was 12 movies deep into his directorial career. All his war experience and film experience came together to create one of the greatest silent films ever made. Wellman's career also successfully broke the sound barrier, and if anything, he grew even more acclaimed with a long list of hit films to his name. In the, in the 1930s, he really took off. The Public Enemy came out in 1931. It was a gangster film that made James Cagney a household name. In 37, Wellman wrote and directed A Star is Born. It is a movie that has been made and remade a million times, but in 1937, William Wellman created the story that started it all. It starred Janet Gaynor and Friedrich March in a tale about an actress's rise to fame in Hollywood. Nothing Sacred in 1937 again starred March, and this time teamed with Carol Lombard in a fast-paced comedy. 1939's Beau Jeste starred Gary Cooper in a tale of adventure in the French Foreign Legion. His last movie, Lafayette Escadrille, came to cinemas in 1958. It would reunite Wellman with a genre he knew very well, World War I flyers. And it featured the unit in which Wellman had flown back in his wartime, and it was a film near and dear to his heart. As his prolific career came and went, Wellman only took home one Academy Award in addition to the Best Picture for Wings, of course. That Oscar would come for the story of A Star is Born in 1937. In fact, he wasn't even nominated for Best Director for Wings. He would be nominated for Best Director Award three times later on for A Star is Born, Battleground, and The High and the Mighty, and in 1973 he was honored by the Directors Guild of America with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Wellman died of leukemia in 1975 at his Brentwood home in Los Angeles. He was cremated and his ashes were scattered at sea. Next in line is Clara Gordon Bowe, born on July 29, 1905 in a tenement apartment above a Baptist church at 697 Bergen Street in Brooklyn's Prospect Heights neighborhood. Bowe's parents, Sarah and Robert, were poor and moved frequently around Brooklyn during Bowe's childhood. Her big break came in a form familiar to regular listeners of the Golden Silence podcast. She entered a Hollywood acting contest. This entry was against her mother's wishes, though her father supported her, and Beau competed in Brewster Publications magazine's annual nationwide acting contest called Fame and Fortune in the fall of 1921. While the contest victory seemed like something that would change her life, she experienced the heartbreaking side of movies fairly quickly. The contest got her a role in 1922's beyond the rainbow the only downside though is that her scenes all got cut from the film she played the lead's little sister only to find out she never made the cut being cut from beyond the rainbow was hardly the worst thing to happen to claire in regards to winning the movie contest again we turn to golden one of the golden silence podcast favorite websites mental floss for more information on mentalfloss.com, there's an article entitled 21 Surprising Facts About It Girl Clara Bow, rebe- written by Rebecca Pale. It's super fascinating and has a lot of great info. Like I was saying, there were some traumas associated with Clara being in Beyond the Rainbow. Rebecca Pale writes To say that Sarah Bow was angry that her daughter had entered the movie contest would be a major understatement. When she was told that Clara had entered a movie contest, Sarah fainted then told Clara she was going to hell for what she had done. But that wasn't even close to the worst of it. Sarah actually tried to murder Clara while she was shooting beyond the rainbow. Clara woke up one night to find her mother standing over her with a butcher knife, who then told her, I'm going to kill you, Clara. It'll be better. Sarah fainted and didn't remember the incident the next morning. Later, she chased Clara around the apartment, again with a butcher knife. Sarah was committed to an asylum, and this led to Clara suffering from lifelong insomnia. Despite that unfortunate turn, Bo refused to give up on her Hollywood ambitions. In fact, she worked for everything. She fought to win every audition and to succeed in every role. This hard work turned into appearing in nearly 57 films over a near decade run. 46 of the films were silent while 11 were talkies. America fell in love with Bo because of her big-eyed, baby-faced beauty but also because she was carefree, energetic, self-assured, and breezily independent. Her allure wasn't about being darkly seductive or howdily elegant, but about being comfortable in her own skin. Sporting short hair and short dresses, she would stride out and grab whatever and whomever she wanted. She was a modern woman. In an article for Vogue, writer written by laird borelli person talks about the magic that all came together to make the it girl from and the film that spawned a legend borelli person writes physically the petite Beau was known for her mop top bob cupid bow lips and huge and expressive betty boop eyes how she vamps with her lamps once wrote variety of the actress who was one of the inspirations for the cartoon character Yes, Bo was a cutie, but it wasn't just her appearance that made her box office gold. It was her sense of fun, a need for escape, a kinetic energy. She danced even when her feet were not moving, crowed Paramount's Adolf Zucor. In 1927, that special something was given a name, It. It was the title of a starring vehicle for Bo. She plays a poor shop girl who wins the heart of her wealthy boss, and it was written by Eleanor Glynn, a British writer of piquant romances. It was often understood to mean sex appeal, but it's a slipperier, more complex quality than that. She would follow it with a string of critical and financial successes, including Wings in 1927. But throughout her career and technically her life, there were forces behind the scenes always conspiring against her. Throughout her life, Beau would struggle with her mental health. Her mother, as we mentioned earlier, had a ton of issues. Nowadays, people reaching out for help with mental issues is tough, and I can only imagine how hard it was for Clara Bow in the 20s. At this point in her career, she was being overworked and dealing with a trial charging her secretary, Daisy DeVoe, with financial mismanagement. As all these stresses came over her, the press and tabloids declared her as hysterical. While filming No Limit and kicking in 1931, her manager, B.P. Schulberg, began referring to her as Crisis the Day Clara. While all this stuff was going down, Bow's love life was often the big story of the day and reporters and authors were more than happy to make stuff up to sell newspapers and books. It was around 1931 that in April, Bo entered a sanatorium at her request, and at her request Paramount released her from her contract. So basically her career was over at the age of 25. Turning back to Rebecca Pale, we get a glimpse into the post-film life of Clara Bo. Pale writes, Clara Bow's final film, Hoopla, came out in 1933 when Bow was the ripe old age of 28. She retired with her husband, Western actor Rex Bell, to a ranch in Searchlight, Nevada, near the California border. Walking Box Ranch, as they called it, a tip of the hat to the old-style Hollywood film cameras, was a working cattle ranch into the 80s, and, as well as being a hangout for some of Bow's famous friends, including Clark Gable, Carol Lombard, and Errol Flynn. Despite being out of the limelight, mental health struggles would persist for Beau. By the late 40s, she would attempt suicide and become a recluse. Her relationship with Rex Bell would become strained as a result of all this. She soon would be living alone in a bungalow in Culver City, California until her death on September 27th, 1965 as a result of a heart attack. Next we're moving on to the first of our fly boys in this episode, that would be Charles Buddy Rogers. And Charles Edward Buddy Rogers was born in Olathe, Kansas, on August 13, 1904, to Maud and Bert Henry Rogers. After graduation from Olathe High School, Buddy attended the University of Kansas. Music would play a big part of Rogers' life at the University of Kansas. There, he played several instruments and even conducted a jazz band. Seeing the talent and boyish good looks of his son, his father submitted his son's photo to a film company, Talent Search, in 1925. Rogers was selected as a finalist in that competition and that would lead to some film roles. Now, quick little digression time. One reoccurring theme I've seen in some films that we have covered revolve around these movie studio contests. And here we have two contest winners in the same movie. I have decried it in the past as ridiculous and unbelievable, but apparently this shows it's a real thing. I'll be damned. While I find it a cliche storyline, I can no longer say it's not a real life thing. How about that, right? So, back to Buddy Rogers. According to New York Times writer Lawrence Van Gelder, in the summer of 1925, his father, on a visit to Kansas City, heard from a friend in the film business about a nationwide search for candidates for Paramount's training school. A photo of Charles was sent off, and much to his surprise, he found himself in the school, and six months later, playing the male lead in Fascinating Youth. This contest would take him to New York for training. His attendance at the acting school really paid off. By his third film appearance, he found himself in a silent movie with W.C. Fields entitled So's Your Old Man, filmed in New York. This work with W.C. Fields would be Rogers' third film of 1926. That's a pretty good year for the multi-talented 22-year-old. Those appearances were all it took for Rogers to get his foot in the Hollywood door. And what would he appear in for his fourth picture? Eh, Nothing big, really only a starring role in the first-ever Oscar winner for Best Picture. That's right, he would take to the air, literally, and star in Wings in 1927, which is why we're all here today. The role positioned Rogers to get the part of Joe Grant in the romantic comedy My Best Girl, also in 1927. This is where he met Mary Pickford, with whom he co-starred. In the love scenes, everyone could see the two-head chemistry. This on-screen magic would serve as a glimpse into a future off-screen union, with Pickford being 12 years his senior. His obituary in the New York Times by Lawrence Van Gelder, written on April 23, 1999, gives us a look into this film and connection of its two stars. Van Gelder writes, After seeing him in Wings, Miss Pickford, one of film's foremost and wealthiest stars, asked that he be cast in her next film, My Best Girl. In that whimsical 1927 film, she played Maggie Johnson, a pretty sales girl in a, five, at a, in a five and ten cent store who captures the heart of Joe Merrill, Mr. Rogers, not knowing he is the son of the owner of the chain of stores. On www.pbs.org, on the American Experience page, there's a wonderful article about the Pickford-Rogers relationship. It reads, When Mary Pickford's marriage to Douglas Fairbanks fell apart, she increasingly turned to her friend and former co-star Buddy Rogers for support. He proposed to her, and they married in 1937. Rogers was a handsome actor and musician. While some critics speculated that he was after Pickford's fame and fortune, his affection for her was widely acknowledged. So it became official in 1937. Rogers, known as America's boyfriend, wed Mary Pickford herself, known as America's sweetheart, and they found themselves knee-deep in marital bliss. Their marriage would last for 42 years until her death at 86 in 1979. Turning back to Mr. Van Gelder, we learn about Buddy's other pursuits in life. Van Gelder writes, Mr. Rogers did not confine his show business career to films. In 1932, he and his orchestra made their Broadway debut in Ziegfeld's Hot Jaw, and throughout the years he appeared in vaudeville and on radio and television and on stage, and he produced films as well. During World War II, he served as a flight training instructor in the Navy. Van Gelder continues, He and Miss Pickford were active in philanthropy, contributing to charities like the Motion Picture and Television Fund, of which Miss Pickford was a founder. At the Academy Award ceremony in 1986, Mr. Rogers was given the Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award for his philanthropic commitment. Now, if that name for that award sounds familiar... It should. The Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award is a prestigious award that we talked about in the very first episode of the Golden Silence podcast when we dove into the life of Gene Herschel. It's a cool set of circumstances and worth checking out if you want a little backstory on the history of, the, of this award. In an article by G. Joseph Perrin in the Kansas Kansaspedia, a site run by the Kansas Historical Society, Rogers always remembered his Kansas roots. Perrin writes, he was named the native Sons and Daughters Kansan of the Year in 1969. Buddy enjoyed visiting Olathe, often remembering that his mother had told him that if he had stayed in Olathe, he would have had better friends. He and his family contributed money to help establish the Buddy Rogers Family Community Theater in Olathe. His last film, The Parson and the Outlaw, premiered in Olathe in 1957. Rogers died at his home in Rancho Mirage, California on April 21, 1999, at the age of 94 of natural causes. He was interred at Forest Lawn Cemetery, Cathedral City, near Palm Springs. Now, let's cruise on over to Roger's fellow Wings pilot, Richard Arland, for a little biography fun. Richard Arlen was born... Well, this was a little weird. Every article I read said he had a different birth name, but... Basically, they all came down to versions of Richard Matamor... Um, different Sylvanus, Cornelius, Van, a lot of different names, but suffice it to say he was born on September 1st, 1899 or 1900, continuing the, the fun of differing articles. Most of his childhood was spent in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he attended St. Thomas college. When he was 17, he went to Canada where he joined the Royal Canadian Flying Corps and became a pilot, but would see no combat. After the war, he was briefly a sports writer in Duluth, Minnesota, and later worked on the oil fields of Texas before heading off to Hollywood. In a fun, if unverified, story related by New York Times reporter Robert E. Thomason in his March 29, 1976 obituary of Richard Arlen, the skeptical Thomason writes, "...a story told about his entry into the movies, whether the creation of the paramount publicity department or fact is unknown." is that while he was working as a messenger for a film lab, he was struck by a studio car and taken to the studio hospital. After being released, he went to express appreciation for his treatment and was offered roles as a bit player. I mean, This was a magical time of star biographies. The studio-manufactured story of a person's life often was more important and well-known than the person's actual life and times. While it makes looking back into these type of things more difficult, they certainly are fun to read and this is one I actually really liked. He had been with Paramount Pictures for five years before winning the coveted role of young World War I aviator David Armstrong in Wings in 1927. In that pre-Wings era, he was credited in six films while appearing in a host of uncredited roles. In the year after Wings, Arlen would appear in four films. Those 1928 flicks were Feel My Pulse, Ladies of the Mob, Beggars of Life, and Manhattan Cocktail. While he was to make about 250 movies, the 1927 film regarded as the last of the silent spectaculars about World War I remained a high point of his career. In an, F, in an era of fierce competitiveness among the Hollywood studios, the young actor made as many as five movies a year, Robert Thomason wrote. "Now This is incredibly impressive and shows great longevity in his career. His was a career that ran from 1921 until his passing in 1976. I mean, you can't beat that, for sure. On the personal side of things, he was married three times. His second marriage came in 1927, when he wed Wings co-star Jobina Ralston. They would divorce in 1946, at which time he married Margaret Kinsella. They would remain married until his death in 1976. And he would also have two children along the way, a daughter, Rose Marie, by his first wife, and a son, Richard, by his second and he would also have two grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. He also stayed closely associated with the world of flight throughout his life. Between the World Wars, he was also part owner of a flying service, and in 1942 was a civilian liaison air safety expert with the Army Air Corps, helping to train up-and-coming pilots. Richard Arland succumbed to the effects of emphysema on March 28, 1976. He had been hospitalized for four weeks before passing away in North Hollywood, California. So now, having talked about some of the people in this production, let's talk about a little bit about the production itself. The film comes from a story by John Monk Saunders, an aviator himself, and rewritten by scriptwriters Hope Loring and Louis D. Lighton to accommodate Bo, Paramount's biggest star at the time. And that's something you'll see in this movie. Like, As good as she was and as fantastic as she was, her role's not the meatiest, and for pretty much the whole third act of the movie, she's completely gone. So you can, it, feel, it feels like they kind of stuck her in. While Like I said, she was great, she was fantastic, and what she did was really good. She was, it felt kind of like an afterthought, but we'll talk more about that in the, after the movie. Another interesting fact about the pre-production of this picture was the involvement of the United States government. The War Department dropped $16 million of support into this picture. And now that's $16 million in 1927 money. I mean, $16 million today is nuts, but $16 million in 1927, that is insane. And you can see that in the manpower and equipment put forth by the government to make this thing look as realistic as possible. Now, William Wellman Jr. breaks down the massive comings and goings of people involved in this production, and you really see where this money came from, or what the money went to, I should say. He writes, Wings would be shot at Kelly Field, Camp Stanley, and other San Antonio locations. Flyers came from Selfridge Field, Michigan, crissy Field, California, Langley Field, Virginia, and Brooks Field, San Antonio. Balloon officers, crews, and equipment were imported from Scott Field, Illinois. Artillery tanks, troops, wire, and high explosives came from Sam- Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And according to his son, the director, Wellman, made numerous trips back and forth from Hollywood to San Antonio. Many weeks were required for the construction and landscape design needed to transform parts of Texas into a French battlefield. A French village and countryside were created, as well as World War I airfields and battlefields. And an interesting note about the setting up for this movie. So they're filming like the climactic battle scene in the trenches and the, the whole battlefield. And there's, like, you know, pockmarks where bombs have been dropped and mortars, all that stuff. And to really make it look like a beat-up battlefield, the actual military flyers and pilots, they, they built the battlefield and had the, the pilots actually bomb it and do training do, do training missions and bomb the ground so that by the time they actually were filming... It looked like a destroyed battlefield that had been bombed bombed to hell and back. So really, that shows you, A, the production side of things, but also the commitment that the government made to, to get this movie made. For the stars of the picture, though, there, there was no stunt piloting. So these were all professional pilots that the government was giving. But William Wellman insisted his stars be up in the air for the close-ups. He wasn't going to have stunt pilots or shoot from the ground. He wanted his pilots, he wanted to see that face, he wanted to see the acting, and there was no other way than to have the actors be flyers. While Arlen had some aviation experience in his background, Charles Buddy Rogers had zero. Both were given best flight instructors available, and through filming, Rogers would log 98 hours in the air, but each flight would end the same way, with vomit. Rogers hated flying but toughed it out for the film. Next, we turn to Dino Everett to learn a little bit about the the features this film would bring to cinema goers at the time of release. In an article for the Library of Congress, Everett writes, also, there was a special sound synchronization machine designed by General Electric that was installed in certain theaters to provide sounds of the machine guns and the airplanes. That was super cool on its own, but he goes on to explain the coolest feature of the movie. Everett adds, the most important special feature of wings that has never been recreated was a technique called magnoscope, which would increase the size of the screen and was used for the aerial battle sequences. A standard 15-foot by 20-foot screen would expand out to 25-foot by 40-foot. This required theaters to showing the film to employ a third projector with a special shutter, intermittent and lens configuration that would be used to project only the magnoscope sequences. In addition to Wings, this procedure was used on another Paramount film, Old Ironsides, directed by James Cruz in 1926. With the scene set and players in place, let's talk about why we're here. Let's talk about this movie. Adolf Zukor and Jesse L. lasky present a Lucian Hubbard production, Wings, directed by William A. Wellman, B.P. Schulberg, associate producer... Story by John Monk Saunders. Screenplay by Hope Loring and Louis D. Leighton. Editor-in-Chief E. Lloyd Sheldon. Photography by Harry Perry, who did amazing, amazing stuff in this film. Uh, He is one of the standout stars of this movie. There's actors, directors, but the stuff Harry Perry did on this, fantastic. Titles by Julian Johnson. The Players. Mary Preston, played by Clara Bow. Jack Powell, played by Charles Rogers. David Armstrong, played by Richard Arlen, and Sylvia Lewis, played by Jobina Ralston. With the opening credits done, our film proper opens with a quote from the most famous aviator of the day. The intertitle reads, On June 12, 1927, in Washington, Colonel Charles A. Lindbergh paid simple tribute to those who fell in war. In that time, he said, feats were performed and deeds accomplished which were far greater than any peace accomplishments of aviation. The film follows with, to those young warriors of the sky, whose wings are folded about them forever. This picture is reverently dedicated. We are introduced to a small town 1917, and to the youth and the dreams of youth. We're also introduced to Jack Powell, who always longed to fly. And in every daydream, he heard the whirr of wings. Our first look at the fantasy flyboy sees him working on his car. Next, we find out Mary Preston has always lived next door. Once Jack had picked her out of a bonfire and sometimes regretted it. She sees Jack working on his car and she hops a fence to help him. The tomboy has a love struck look on her face, but Jack is oblivious to her flirtation. According to a handful of accounts, Clara Beau was no fan of Girl Next Door Mary Preston. She would go so far as to call Wings a man's picture, and I'm just the whipped cream on top of the pie. They eventually get the car all fixed up and Jack tells Mary the new speed gears will make her travel like a shooting star. Mary paintbrush in hand replies the shooting star say what a great name for her and the incredibly charming Mary paints a shooting star on the side. After some failed, more failed flirting on Mary's part Jack drives off thinking about kissing the girl he loves under a shooting star and spoiler alert it's not Mary. Next, we get an incredibly cool visual intro into David and Sylvia. The two are on a swing and the camera follows the motion of the swing, which looks super rad. And we learned that Sylvia Lewis had an advantage over the small town girls. She was a visitor from the city. And David Armstrong had an advantage too. His was the wealthiest family in town. At this point, Jack comes riding up and inserts himself between Sylvia and Jack. He wants Sylvia to get the first ride in his shooting star. David smirks as she heads off with the smitten Jack. The two drive off as a sad Mary looks on. The film takes us from the carefree small town shenanigans to a world at war. So youth laughed and wept as it lived its heedless hour, while over the world hung a cloud which spread and spread until its shadow fell in some degree on every living person. War. And youth answered the challenge. The film comes back and we are at the sign-up station for the men wanting to join the aviation forces. Jack is there signing up with a spring in his step and stars in his eyes. He's filling out the paperwork to do his dream job. Also filling out paperwork is one Herman Schwimpf. He is played by L. Brendel and really serves up the comic relief in this film. His name plays a part in a number of gags throughout the film, and this intro bit serves as a great entry point into Mr. Schwimpf. Another gag that repeats is for him is his hilariously American biceps tattoo. This is a, this is a good time as any to introduce L. Brendel himself. Elmer Goodfellow Brendel was born on March twenty fifth, 1890, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Despite often playing foreign characters, Brendel was born in America to an Irish mother and German immigrant father, and had no accent despite the character he played on stage and screen, which was often a Swedish character. He was an incredibly prolific actor, regularly working from 1926 until his death in 1964. He worked for famous players Lasky and Paramount Pictures before going to Fox in 1929. In 1936, he made his debut with Columbia Pictures and recorded some songs for Imperial Records in 1950, in addition to appearances on variety shows on television. The multi-talented actor would pass away on April 9, 1964 in Hollywood, California. In addition to Jack and Herman, David Armstrong also puts pen to paper to take to the skies. With everyone preparing to ship off, Sylvia is signing her love to David on the back of a photo and puts it in a locket. As she does this, Jack enters. He tells her that he is leaving for training this afternoon and he would like a picture of her to take to war with him. He sees the one she prepared for david and takes it gee i never expected you'd have this ready for me i'll wear it always it will bring me luck he says sylvia knows that she doesn't share jack's feelings but doesn't have the heart to break it to him before going off to possibly die as he leaves david arrives and the two real lovebirds share some alone time before he heads off too she explains everything and tells david he has her heart Jack is heading off with his parents when he sees Mary. He runs to her. She gives him a picture too, but he is not as impressed. He doesn't give her love, but he lets her drive the shooting star while he's gone. Her heart breaks and he tears off. As the goodbyes continue, we are now with David as he shares some last moments with his parents. His mother's terribly sad. Her boy is becoming a soldier. His wheelchair-bound father remains stoic. They all share final embraces. David leaves with his super small childhood teddy bear in hand for luck. His mother lovingly demands he bring it back to her. After leaving and such, it's time for training, and the first step on the road to glory. No thrills, no glamour, and as exciting as going back to school. Jack, David, and Herman are all in line signing in. This is where we get some more funny goofy stuff with Schwimp, which ends with him breaking out that American flag tattoo. This guy is great fun to watch and can really lighten up some of the heavier moments of this movie. Next up is basically a training montage because you got to have a montage. The three men are in a gyroscope thingies first which ends with Herman puking. Next the men are at the guns practicing shooting at flying targets. That is followed by physical combat training. Here we first really see the seeds of jealousy between Jack and David. Not as much between Jack and David but from Jack at David but in reality like I said it's just with Jack and the film tells us through all the grind of training Jack's dislike for David increased day by day throughout these training bits we see the drill sergeant on and off he was played by a fellow named Gunboat Smith Golden Silence podcast favorite reviewer Morden Hall found his role to be a real gem in this film Hall wrote, Gunboat Smith, the ex-pugilist, is excellent as a sergeant, who finds sometimes that physical persuasion is necessary. First, they are exercising and Jack is intentionally messing with David's hat. We then move on to the combat, combat portion where a legit fight breaks out between the two men. They are training by boxing and things get way out of hand. After a crazy bit of fighting, Jack knocks down the bloody David. While the fight got a bit crazy, the two seem to bond over their aggression. While the two earned each other's respect and friendship in the movie, their relationship in real life was a little more complicated. William Wellman Jr. writes, They respected and tolerated each other. The turning point of their movie friendship happened during the fisticuffs in the training camp sequence. Before the fight scene took place, Arlen told his director that he knew how to box and didn't think Rogers did. So Arlen said, Wellman should tell Rogers to be very careful. The director followed the actor's orders. When Wellman yelled action and the combat began, choreography soon disappeared from view. Buddy Rogers, admittedly not a fighter, beat the living hell out of Richard Arlen simply on guts alone. Just the way it was supposed to be in the script. Richard Arlen and Buddy Rogers continued to be rivals and not the best of friends. Back to the movie. While while at home, we are looking at a newspaper article that reads, Women's Motor Corps, meeting called for Thursday afternoon. Miss Bell Thomas asks for volunteers for a unit of the Women's Motor Corps of America. Those who can drive Ford cars are especially desired. This news gets Mary all fired up and excited for her chance to contribute. She's been driving the shooting star and intends to help the war effort. Back at training camp, Jack and David begin to believe they will never see any real planes, no real action, just sitting around learning. Then, suddenly... They find out the ground school days are over. This is the point where Jack and David move into their tent slash quarters. This section is our first real glimpse of air of the aerial footage to come. A plane filming down flies over the airbase. It's super cool looking and builds the scope of the picture. Just seeing this created airbase and its size via these flyovers was tremendous. In their tent, the two men meet their roommate, a cadet white. This is our first glimpse of Gary Cooper. He introduces himself before offering Jack some chocolate and heading out to do some flying before chow time. The three men talk about their lucky charms for a bit before White heads out. As he leaves, he tells the guys, Luck or no luck, when your time comes, you're gonna get it. He gives them a smile and heads out. According to Rebecca Pale of Mental Floss, Clara Bow may not be the reason Gary Cooper got his start in film, but she certainly gave him a boost. After spotting him on the Paramount lot, Beau insisted that he be cast in It. He was given a small role playing a newspaper reporter. Later, he showed up in Beau's wings. They embarked on an intense six-month relationship that ended in part because Cooper's mother objected to Beau. But Clara Beau wasn't the only person with a soft spot for Gary Cooper. Director William A. Wellman kept Cooper on set and on payroll, much to the chagrin of studio execs. The director would later write, Cooper's big scene was in a tent, so I had the tent lugged everywhere the company shot scenes. It traveled all over San Antonio, was unloaded and put up in the morning, taken down and reloaded when work was finished. This was a traveling tent, an emergency set to be used when all else failed or at my discretion. My discretion was influenced by a growing fondness for this awkward, lovable guy. He was broke, needed a break, And the longer his engagement on wings, the more important his part looked to those back in Hollywood. The two men continue talking Lucky Charms and Jack won't disclose his. Just at that moment, two planes crash into each other. One of the men involved was Cadet White. He is dead and Jack and David are ordered to collect his belongings to be taken to headquarters. They solemnly do as they are told and we get some glimpses into White's life as they pack it all up. As the two men finish packing the cadets' things, they are called to the deadline immediately for flying instruction. They both head out, and David grabs his lucky bear on the way out. The two are all smiles as they take off in their guided instructional lesson. Those smiles won't last long, however. Like a mighty maelstrom of destruction, the war now drew into its center the power and the pride of all of Earth, the film tells us. Training is over, and the troops are on the front lines. As we see soldiers marching across the battlefields, our attention goes to the airfields, and we get our first glimpse of the new shooting star. The shooting star again, this time a rider of the heavens. Jack's plane is getting some extra decoration in the form of a shooting star, same as his car, and the painter is a familiar face. And that is uh, Herman Schwimp painting the shooting star on the side of the plane and as we see more of the airfield, we find out that Herman Schwimp's patriotism was puncture proof. He was thrown out as a flyer but re-enlisted as a mechanic so he gets to still be a part of things. Some time passes and night has fallen and as Jack and David are ordered to their first nighttime patrol. They are ordered to patrol between here and Mervale and to look out for Captain Kellerman and his flying circus. They are given last instructions before taking to the violent skies. The squad lines up to take off. The whir of wings, once only a romantic dream, now broke over Jack Powell and stern reality. This is where filmgoers are given their first glimpses of spectacular aerial footage. As the movie moves on, I am going to not really go into much detail about all these flying scenes. They are just so amazing and breathtaking, they just need to be experienced. In this first bit though, we get our first look at the enemy. Count von Kellermann, famous German ace and leader of the Flying Circus. This footage gives you everything, close-ups, wide shots, action shots, it's all there as the two sides engage in insane dogfights. One thing to note, as planes fire bullets and ships explode, they do special effects to add bright orange to the sepia footage to really show the effects. It's really quite unbelievable. One pilot even gets shot and spits up blood and commits to the acting as he lets his plane die. In an article for the Library of Congress at www.loc.gov, author Dino Everett writes about these incredible shots. Everett writes, One of the most impressive actions by Wellman was his dedication towards getting the aerial scenes to be as realistic as possible, which sometimes meant days without shooting anything. It also meant that the actors needed to learn to fly the planes. For a young director with not much of a track record, this was a risky move, but in the end, it was the correct one, Because not only did Wellman insist that the aerial dogfights be shot against a backdrop of clouds, they needed to make some technological improvements to properly shoot them in the first place. The main one they needed was motorized cameras to be mounted on the planes so that the cameraman, led by Harry Perry, who I mentioned earlier, could man the planes flying alongside for long shots and the actors would turn on the cameras mounted on the front and back of the planes they were flying for close-ups and point-of-view shots. The results were unparalleled for the time. Everett writes. Soon David is attacked by Captain Kellerman. David's gun jams, and when all seems lost, Kellerman lets him go with the tip of the cap. There is chivalry in the skies. Next, we switch over to Jack, who is under heavy attack. His plane is hit, and his oil pipe is blown. His motor is dead. His only hope is to bring it down with a controlled crash. And what a crash it was! Though he is down, enemy planes continue to go for the kill. Their bullets miss as Jack makes his way to a nearby trench in the middle of the battlefield. Bombs and bullets and mortars blow everything up. When things calm a bit, he's welcomed as a Yank into the British trench. So now some time passed, weeks pass, and the fledgling flyers are veterans now. While on a war torn road behind the lines comes another already veteran of service. This is where we are reunited with Mary, who's driving aid trucks to the supply line to supply the lines. She is a great driver and making moves on the battlefield. Our reunion with Mary is short-lived before we head out to the German side of the lines. We discover a giant Gotha, mightiest of the German bombing planes, takes on its deadly load for a dash across the lines. This plane is a chunky boy. They load it up to make them run to Mervale. Our intelligence reports a secret concentration of the enemy at Mervale. Proceed there directly and blow it off the map, we're told escorted by two swift battle planes the great dragon makes its way to the skies mervale the target of the bombing ship is a tiny village packed with munitions and jammed with billeted regiments we learn that mary has been in mervale the flu had struck mervale and mary's puddlehopper was a daily visitor laden with medical supplies amid some fun with the troops word comes down that the gotha is on its way jack and david both take off Everyone in the town hunkers down underground, awaiting the bombing. Mary is quite unaware as she drives through the now empty town. She can find no one. As she looks around, the bombs start to drop. She hides under her truck as all hell breaks loose and the town is turned to rubble. The total destruction of this village is incredibly harrowing to watch. Stuff is getting blown up left and right. This must have been a sight to see when they were filming it, just watching this set get utterly decimated. As she digs herself out, we learn that swift and straight as arrows of vengeance come the two Americans. Mary cheers on her flyboys from the rubble as Jack and David go to work on enemy planes. Jack goes after the chunky bomber while David sets his sights on two accompanying planes. This battle is nuts. The stunt flying is out of hand, and watching it with the sound effects and seeing that bright orange flame really pulls you in. There really is no adequate way to explain these dogfights, so please, please watch this movie. And when you watch those orange flames, those were actually colored hand, by hand, frame by frame by the special effects department, and it shows you what, how much work and how no expense, was ex, what no expense was spared in the making of this flick. So our heroic airmen have emerged victorious. When Mary is told that the legendary shooting star was one of the planes, she realizes it was her Jack and cheers even harder for her love. We're now at an awards ceremony in France where Jack and David, amongst others, are given medals for their heroics. We learn France is proud to recognize gallantry in its allies, as in her own sons. It's intermission time of the film, and I'm guessing this episode, because I think it's going to be a long one. uh, I don't have the time in front of me, but uh, it's intermission time for the movie and the podcast, I suppose. But the movie starts back up and we are dropped into one of the funnier sections of the film. A section literally about fun and relaxation for both characters and the viewers. The intertitle tells us, A decoration meant leave, and leave, with nerves strained to the breaking point, by week on week of unceasing warfare in the skies, meant only one thing. Paris. Our heroes are living large in Paris and join the spoils of military valor and celebrity. But alas... Since America's entrance into the war, the Allies had prepared silently, thoroughly for the big push, the greatest battle of history. Now came the final call. This is all to say that all leaves are being canceled and the big moment is upon the Allies. The entire force is instructed to be ready for active battle service without delay. But for Jack, Paris in wartime, the capital of the world's gaiety, crowded with soldiers of all races on furlough from death, trying to forget. Mary, while driving, sees a sign for the shooting star and that he is here in Paris. This is where she finds out that all soldiers are being recalled under penalty of court-martial for not doing so. She learns that Jack and some others have headed to a fancy club to enjoy their leave. She takes it upon herself to head to the Follet Bergere Club and find Jack. We are told, here... For men fresh from the front, whose minds carried the image of unutterable horrors, here was forgetfulness. Inside the club, we get a few shots of guys and French gals having a fun night. But what happens next is one of the most amazing tracking shots I have ever seen. It was gorgeous. So basically, the camera flies over seven or so tables, with each table having two people on each side. No, having one person on each side, two people total. It is a killer shot that ends with Jack and a bunch of people at the last table. Watching this, I couldn't believe they pulled it off. And it's so crisp and perfect. How did they get such an all-timer shot? We turn to Meg Shields and her article, How They Filmed the Cafe Dolly Shot in Wings for the website Film School Rejects at www.filmschoolrejects.com. So, upon returning to Paramount Studios, a set for the club was built. This is one of the last parts of the film to be filmed. Here, they were able to build a rig for the camera mounted on an overhead track. Shields writes, The vertical structure, which kind of looks like construction scaffolding, was supported by a rail that allowed the rig to move smoothly. A flat platform at the bottom of the structure supported the camera operator, E. Burton Burtonstein, who lay on his stomach while he worked with the IMO, a non-reflex compact 35 millimeter camera. The IMO was mounted on an extension below the boom. During each take, the camera would dolly in from one end of the room to the other via the ceiling track. But getting the, the camera to move wasn't the only bit of magic in making this this scene come to life. It was also the folks in front of the camera that made this shot legendary. Shields adds, If you watch carefully, you can clock the meticulous choreography of the extras. They appear to move closer to one another, even when in actuality, they are springing apart moments later to allow the camera to pass. I'm an especially big fan of the gentleman to Charles Rogers' left. Watch him sneakily pull his champagne glass out of the approaching camera's path. After the cool tracking shot that ends on old Jackie boy getting drunk, Mary sees him getting awfully close to another gal. She doesn't like it one bit and steps in. Jack, again, doesn't give her a second look, though she pleads her case. Can't you understand, she says. Your leave. Cancelled. You've got to go back to war, she pleads. His reply? No war. Just bubbles. With that declaration, everyone at at his table's party goes even harder, gets even drunker. He gets drunker. She resigns herself to failing to save her love. She heads to the bathroom and cries and pours her heart out to the bathroom attendant. The attendant has some wisdom for Mary though. She says, if you would catch the fly, do you set the vinegar? No, uh, Cherie, but the sugar, yes. So Mary is taken to the dancers dressing room where she is prompted to put on a sexy dress. This would be the honey for the fly catching. She gets all done up to the nines to impress Jack, except Jack is drunk so drunk he becomes obsessed with bubbles and we the viewer see every bubble jack sees even though mary and jack's other girl almost throw down drunk jack just wants bubbles as the two women fight over him this whole bit is fun and comedic respite from the grimness of the warfare we've been watching up until this point mary wins the fight for jack and the two head back to his hotel room she's doing her best to get him sobered up for duty but all he sees are bubbles bubbles everywhere. He has no clue as to the seriousness of his situation. Eventually he passes out and Mary sees his locket and thinks it holds a picture of her. She is heartbroken to open it up and see Sylvia's picture in it instead. She decides to change her clothes and leave. As she is changing, military police dudes barge in looking for Jack. They catch her topless as she is changing. They make a few crude jokes to her and eventually tell her she can't be acting this way and it's back home for her. She cries as she gets dressed, having lost her man and her job. We move back to war. Each day now, the long roads of France were filled with marching men, as preparation for the big push swung into its final stages. Vanished, the fairyland of Paris. Again, the stark reality of, flying, of the flying field, the drone of motors, and death riding the clouds the movie reminds us. Jack and David study their flight plans. The grim reality starts to set in on David as he asks Jack to return his lucky bear to his parents in case of his death. David makes it clear to Jack. He says, I have a hunch I'm not coming back today. Jack cheers him up and says, nothing could possibly go wrong. As Jack is away, David, reacts, David reads a letter from his Sylvia. She writes, Jack still thinks that I love him. His letters say this again and again but it is you I love, dear David. As David reads his letter, Jack finds an article about Mary in the newspaper. It reads, Mary Preston returning. According to a cable dispatch received yesterday, Miss Mary Preston has resigned from the Women's Motor Transport Corps and will return to the United States immediately. Jack says Mary is not the type to quit. Another soldier pipes up, resign doesn't always mean quit. Sometimes it means fired. He continues on with some jokes about Mary, to which Jack steps up to the soldier. The soldier replies, all right, all right, I didn't know she was your girl. David sees this as an opening to wean Jack off of Sylvia. He tries to ask Jack if he's in love with Mary. Jack doesn't go for it, no can do. In fact, his love for Sylvia becomes more resolute. He mans up and tells David his intentions with Sylvia. He doesn't want to hurt their friendship, but it's the square thing to do. He finally discloses, to David, what his lucky charm is. It was the locket Sylvia gave him. After a tense back and forth about the picture, an angry and frustrated David rips it up, and a fight is about to break out when a commander comes in and tells him it's wartime. Germans are on the move. The two pilots head out, except David forgets his lucky bear. As they're about to take off, Herman finds the bear and tries to get it to David, but he is too late. David tries to be friendly with Jack, but Jack is still hurt as the two take to the sky. As the American troops march, German balloons view the movements. The first shell strikes, sending a man flying through the air. Another young soldier soldier is shot dead. The march goes on. We're back in the unfriendly skies as an enemy battle squadron closes in behind to cut off the two Americans. To protect his flying mate, David hurls himself into desperate combat. David's first wild rush disposes of one enemy, then another German falls, but now comes the reckoning. The remaining two Germans have gained altitude. David is at their mercy, earthward, twisting and doubling through the clouds. Meanwhile, Jack reaches the objective, two balloons in a sheltered valley. Jack destroys one of the balloons in a fiery explosion before destroying the second the same way. Jack celebrates his triumph in the sky but looks around and there is no sign of David. Sick with foreboding, the film tells us, Jack turns his plane for home, while David, like a hare doubling from the hounds, is is hit and takes a bullet to the shoulder. His plane crashes into a marsh. David escapes the crash, but now has to contend with German soldiers shooting at him. He's able to swim to kind of sort of safety, for the time being at least. Let's take a quick little side quest to learn about William Wellman and the filming of these exciting dogfights. Remember I mentioned a little bit earlier a little blurb about the clouds um, and the sky conditions so here's a little more in-depth about that. So Wellman was a super particular about the sky conditions that the aerial footage was filmed in. He would hold filming on days when the weather was perfect. These delays often led to animosity between the studio and filmmaker. This isn't the only thing between the studio and Wellman that would cause animosity, but this is a big one. Money was going out the window as cast and crew sat around in perfect, sunny, and clear weather. But was it perfect? Director William A. Wellman himself would write Say you can't shoot a dogfight without clouds to a guy who doesn't know anything about flying and he thinks you're nuts. He'll say, Why can't you? It's unattractive. Number two, you get no sense of speed because there's nothing there that's parallel. You need something solid behind the planes. The clouds give you that, but against a blue sky, it's like a lot of goddamn flies, and photographically, it's terrible. So back to the movie. All that night, with zero hours set for dawn, the Allied armies were moving stealthily toward their appointed posts. We see this with large, mass groups of troops marching. Meanwhile, behind enemy lines, David is trying to survive and get back. As he fights for survival, Jack waits and hopes for David's return. A lone German plane attacks the Allied base and drops a note. It reads, Spad 98, your squadron shot down in flames at Mad River. Pilot killed resisting capture. And it was signed, Otto Kellerman, Captain. Daybreak along the battlefront, a death-like stillness. In the trenches, men crouching shoulder to shoulder, hardly daring to breathe. The battle has begun. The mortars and bombs tear up the land. Trench warfare commences as tanks roll out across the battlefield, passing over barbed wire like it were tissue paper. Jack prepares to take up the battle in the sky. Holding David's bear, he tells Herman, I'll square things up for Dave or I won't come back. The rest of the squad takes their place in their respective planes and all eventually take off to war. As the squadron takes to the air, we get fantastic visuals and aerial shots of the pockmarked battlefield. One of the things that makes it so amazing is the sheer scope and size of the battlefield. It's not just one little section that's seen, but it's a huge area and makes you really feel like you're in a real battle zone. Now we get more footage of the tanks just running roughshod and troops battle and bombs and shells exploding everywhere. Driven by a mad desire to avenge his comrade, Jack plunges across the German lines alone. Jack makes his way to the Mad River where he comes across a bunch of German soldiers crossing a makeshift bridge. He wastes no time in wasting the German troops as he flies by. As Jack is in the enemy air, the doughboys continue their push forward. Jack flies in hot and dive bombs at the, the marching German troops. He fires on them as they flee and scatter. Jack then takes out a German general and his men in the car, and that crashes spectacularly. By mid-morning, the Allied advance was all along the front. Groping blindly forward, shattered remnants of the American first wave reached the enemy's trenches, we're told. If I said it once, I'm going to say it a million times. This movie is epic and the scale is crazy. These overhead shots of the battlefield are so big and sweeping, I can't imagine what it was like to watch this film from the ground. It must have been like watching an actual battle. And if you just watch these on their own, you could almost think it was newsreel footage or other recorded footage that wasn't made specifically for this movie. It's that big, it's that large in scale, and it's that realistic and so well rehearsed. So much time was put into making these battles look the way they look. And a lot of people working on this film are war veterans, so they know what they're looking for. It's not necessarily, I mean, it's a little bit of Hollywoodized version, but there really is a realistic core to them. The enemy counterattacks as the Allied soldiers push forward again. Then Jack swoops in to assist the troops fighting against the Germans. Soon the French have made their way into the fray. We move our focus back to the Mad River, in the marshes, where even in peacetime few stragglers find their way. It's an injured David doing his best to escape back to friendly lines. He comes up to a German airfield. The pilots are preparing for takeoff when David takes out a mechanic and commandeers a German plane. He's secured his escape. Or has he? Back on the battlefield, the enemy is retreating. Between mortar, shell, and air fire, the Germans are on their heels and running in retreat. But the Allied forces don't let up. The route is on as the Germans fall. Victory. Just the fact that this movie was made and finished by Wellman is also a victory. Throughout filming, like I said before, he was constantly at odds with the studio. And the studio, going into the movie, didn't have a lot of trust in their 29-year-old director. And in fact, he was nearly fired, but then the cost of bringing in a new director and bringing that director up to speed with everything that had already been set in motion was going to be more trouble than just keeping Wellman in place to finish out this movie. So back in the movie, the uproar of battle dies away. over ground strewn with the dead, Jack heads his plane for home, we're told. This is where things take a tragic Shakespearean turn. David is far from safe. Therefore, before Jack was a lone German plane heading straight for the American lines, Jack only sees the German Iron Cross insignia and wants revenge for the believed killing of David Armstrong. David looks out and sees Jack's shooting star logo. He tries to get his friend's attention. Jack starts firing on David. David pleads for his life and for his friend, but Jack continues pursuit and attack. Soon, Jack hits David and the German plane goes into a tailspin. David is, for all intents and purposes, dead. His plane crashes into a house in the French countryside. Jack cheers for his heroics. Allied soldiers pull the body out of the wreckage. The troops all celebrate the victory of Jack as he cuts off the Iron Cross logo off the back of the plane as a trophy. As he's doing this, he's beckoned in. With a, a villager telling him the injured pilot has not long to live. He goes in but his smile soon turns to heartbreak. Like when Lisa Simpson broke Ralph Wiggum's heart, and Bart plays it over and over again on that episode of The Simpsons when he choo choo choosed Lisa. Here in Buddy Rogers' acting, you can see that exact moment when he realizes what he's done, that he has killed his best friend. This scene is a really great showcase for both men, actually. Jack runs over and takes the dying pilot in his arms. David tries to explain his plan. Jack keeps positive and tells David he'll be okay, that he'll get a doctor. But alas, David's too far gone. David doesn't want heroics. Don't go, Jack. Just stay here with me for a little while, David tells his friend. As Jack takes David in his arms again, he explains himself. Oh, Dave, Dave, I was just trying just to get one more hiney for you, Jack tells David. David tells Jack it wasn't his fault. You didn't shoot me, Jack. You did bring down a Heine ship, don't you see? Jack gives an emotional, brotherly kiss to David. He apologizes for the fight over the picture. In fact, Jack says, you, you know there's nothing in the world that means so much to me as your friendship. And David responds, I knew it all the time. And with that, David is dead, and Jack cries over his body for a moment before leaving his victory trophy behind and carrying David's body out to be transported before burial. Jack is back at the airfield going through David's things to be sent back. First, he looks at the tore-up picture of Sylvia, and then finds the letter from Sylvia to David where she says David is her true love. He realizes he had been a fool. Next, he picks up David's Medal of Honor and his lucky bear, We leave the war torn, and instead set our sights on home, and a man returning, where a boy had gone away. We get a montage of civic pride for the returning hero. Parades, bands, fans, and friends cheering and throwing flowers. A motorcade and parade, but not everyone is joyous. David's parents stoically mourn their fallen son, and Sylvia cries on that swing she was with David on earlier in the picture. It's with a heavy heart and barren hand that Jack makes his way to the Armstrong house. As he waits for david's parents we get a glimpse of david's makeshift grave overseas jack is distraught as we try as he tries to talk to david's parents he gives the mother the bear and the medal she breaks down as she kisses the bear jack consoles her and puts his head in her lap apologizing i can't hate you i can't david's mother tells him it wasn't your fault it was war after that heaviness jack uncovers his car looking for happy memories He turns and sees mary he runs to her he kisses her and the two talk long into the night he tells her about his wild parisian night and mary consoles him remember i saw the war too jack and i can't blame anyone for anything what happens from now on is all that matters isn't it dear she asks him the two sit on the car holding each other as they watch a shooting star fly by and jack kisses the girl he loves the end now, as the final credits are rolling, it's time to give my thoughts on the movie. I loved this movie. Loved it. No reason to make my words or prose any more fancy. I just loved every second of it. And this love came out of left field. I mean, I knew it was good, and I knew of its awards pedigree, but that didn't prepare me what I was in for. you know what I'm talking about. You hear something's amazing, and invariably it never lives up to the hype. It gets built up so high that it can't really live up to it but, and you always end up getting a letdown, but that didn't happen. Like when I watched Wings, if anything, I actually liked it more than I thought I was gonna like it. First and foremost, I gotta talk about the air footage. I mean, how insane is this stuff? I doubt you could recreate this stuff nowadays. They did it perfectly and it really gives you a sense of what air combat really was in that bygone era. It really feels like documentary footage the realism this approach gives the film is something special. Someone watching could easily just think it's newsreel stock film that was edited into the movie, but it wasn't. And the movie excels because of Wellman's vision and a choice to go all in on real filming and those brave daredevil pilots that made it happen. I mean, I don't say this very often, but I was on the edge of my seat for all the aerial battles. It just sucks you in and doesn't let go. It was crazy, and to imagine seeing this on a big screen with the gunfire and the explosions and the effects going on would have blown my mind. While the big aerial dogfights bring you in, it's the acting performances that keep you engaged. The piloting duo of Rogers and Arlen really surprised me. I didn't think their relationship would really be so believable and natural. Going in, I thought Jack was just going to be the baby face and David was going to be the heel, always messing things up for him. I've been trained to think that there can only be one good guy who has to overcome the bullied jerk. But in this film, their relationship grew, and it grew organically. There was no bad guy. I guess the Germans, but of the main characters, like, David wasn't a villain. Jack wasn't perfect. They were just two realistic movie dudes. It was so believable I was legitimately heartbroken when I realized Jack was doomed to shoot David out of the sky. I mean, legit sad that the mistaken identity would end the way it did. That's a testament to the performances of these two leads. I don't get emotional with movies much, but Wings got me. And on the topic of emotional moments, the end of the film really got me too. The way they played the death of David and his final connection and goodbye from Jack that was the emotional high point of this for me. Like I said earlier, I never expected these two to develop such a deep bond, and it really surprised me. And I loved seeing it and how tender Jack was upon David's last breaths. And a bit of an extension from this point, when Jack returned home to meet with David's parents, that really connected with me too. This came, uh, I guess, on a more personal side for me. I had um, my grandpa's brother, so I guess that would be a great uncle, I suppose. His name was Norman Lowness. He died overseas at the age of 28 during World War II in Belgium and was buried there in a cemetery for American veterans killed during World War II. And no member of my family has ever been over to be able to say goodbye or pay their respects. His circumstances were like those of David Armstrong. He died far, far away, and that terrible news was delivered to parents and a family that for all intents and purposes never saw him again or saw his final resting place it's one of the sad sides of war and really choked me up at the end thinking what my great great grandparents were were going through as not being able to see one of their children again so in conclusion in nutshell this movie was fantastic and has moved into my all-time favorite list now that i've had my say what did others around the movie watching world have to say Unlike the last few episodes, this one has a ton of great breakdowns of the film. Lots of cool thoughts and opinions to dive into with some contemporary Wings reviews. One of the first reviews I wanted to feature was written by Sid Silverman for Variety from August 17th, 1927. Silverman writes, Richard Arlen goes through the picture minus makeup. At least the cameras register him that way. Consequently, he looks high-bred, high-strung youngster who would dote on aviation, and backs it up with a splendid performance that never hints of the actor. Charles Rogers' effort is also first-rate, the important point here being that the two boys team well together. There not being so much of Clara Bow in the picture, she gives, she gives an all-around quirking performance. Elle Brandel's comedy is spasmodic and mostly early in the first half, while Gary Cooper is on and off within a half a reel. For the New York Daily News writer Irene Thayer, the battles in the sky really stood out for her. In the August 13, 1927 edition, she wrote, but what are most important and what portray the magic of our motion picture industry are the spellbinding battle scenes of the air. Nothing like them has ever been filmed before. Onrushing planes swooping down from an altitude of 2,000 feet, or so we're told, bursting shells, insistent barrage of masked batteries smoke curtains that swirl in the breeze words cannot describe the magnificence of this this is a great and glorious movie and its makers have the right to be proud of themselves and that brings us to our favorite contemporaneous movie reviewer and legend of the written word to us here at least at the golden silence podcast Mordant hall and his review also from the august 13th 1927 edition of the new york times this review gives a good representation of the overall film going experience. Like I mentioned earlier, during showings of this picture, lots of cool stuff was happening in the theater, from the screen changing sizes for dogfights to recorded sound effects of explosions and gunfire playing, being played in addition to the music. Hall writes, each time an airplane hurtled in flames to the earth, there was a doleful hooting behind the screen. When the aviators are about to take off and the propellers are set in motion, The sound of whirring motors makes these stretches all the more vivid. The magnoscope, which gives a picture twice the usual size, is used to great extent in this film. While enjoying the experience, it's not a Morton Hall review without a little passive-aggressive negativity. Though not nearly as negative as most instances, Hall writes, John Monk Saunders is responsible for the story, which aside from the climax of having John Powell the hero eventually bring down the plane in which is his friend, is a conventional narrative that serves its purpose as a background for the remarkable scenes in the air. The last chapter that concerned with the return of Pal to his home and country is, like so many stories, much too sentimental and there is far more of it than one wants. Morton Hall, though, was certainly taken with the air combat scenes, like many of the reviewers. Another thing he found top-notch were the performances of the cast, especially Charles Buddy Rogers. Writing about the performers, Hall says, in most of the scenes in which he appears, Charles Rogers as Powell gives a sterling performance. He is especially clever in the Paris episodes where he is supposed to be so inebriated that he fancies bubbles burst from everything that sparkles. Clara Bow, bright eyed and attractive, does her bit to add to the interest of this photoplay. Richard Arlen as Armstrong is undoubtedly earnest in his acting, but there are moments when his head shaking becomes a trifle tedious. Thank you, Mr. Hall. It has been way too long since we've had your review goodness all over this podcast, and we hope the next appearance won't be so long of a wait. So, with the reviews out of the way, since this film was the first Academy Award winner for Best Picture, it's only fair we dig into the birth of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. According to www.oscars.org, during a dinner at his home in 1927, MGM studio chief Louis B. Mayer and his guests talked about creating an organized group to benefit the film industry. A week later, 36 invitees from all the creative branches of the film industry dined at Los Angeles' Ambassador Hotel to hear a proposal to found the International Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Articles of incorporation were soon presented and officers were elected with Fairbanks, Douglas Fairbanks, as president. This all leads to May 16, 1929, and the first ever awards event. At the time of the Oscar ceremony, sound had just been introduced to film. The Warner Brothers movie, The Jazz Singer, was one of the first talkies, was not allowed to compete for Best Picture because the Academy decided it was unfair to let movies with sound compete with silent films. The first official Best Picture winner was Wings, directed by William Wallman. At the time, it was the most expensive movie of its its time, with a budget of $2 million. Another film, F.W. Murnau's epic Sunrise, was considered a dual winner for Best Film of the Year. Now if you're curious as to how two films won Best Picture, here's the scoop on the dual award situation. So Wings won the award for Outstanding Picture, which has since gone on to be known simply as Best Picture. The F.W. Murnau-directed film Sunrise was the winner of the award for Best Unique and Artistic Picture. These two awards both theoretically served as the top prizes of the evening. Though they both were tops, each was meant to award and recognize different aspects of filmmaking. The award for unique and artistic pictures soon went away and we were left with the best picture award we know and love today. At that first Academy Awards, Wings special effects guru Roy Pomeroy also took an award for best engineering effects. That's a pretty good start for the Oscars and a winding down of the silent film era regarding awards. Wings remains the only fully silent film to nab Best Picture until The Artist in 2011, which does include some talky bits, which giving Wings the special silent honor. Now, as we lay this episode to rest, it's time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is a segment where we join our favorite cinematic aviators on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, and the celebrity spectacle converge, and where are they now? Your guide to paying your respects to the film legends that have entertained us so much. Our cemetery trip today takes us to Culver City in Los Angeles County, California. In the movie, we saw the fictional death of David Armstrong, so it seemed fitting to look at the real life death of Richard Arlen. Arlen died on March 28, 1976, of emphysema. After a funeral service at St. Cyril's Church in Encino, Arlen was laid to rest in Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, California. He has a very unassuming stone marker marking his final resting place. If you make it there, his plot is located at T-T57-130. For all of you Hollywood Walk of Fame fans out there, please stop by 6753 Hollywood Boulevard so you can pay your respects to Richard Arland for his contributions to the motion picture industry. He was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on February 8th, 1960. And with that, It seems like a great time to start wrapping up this supersized episode of the Golden Silence podcast. We thank you for hanging through this long episode, but we hope we made it worthwhile, that it was a worthwhile endeavor. You got a lot of good info, and we got to talk about a really amazing movie. We hope you enjoyed your flight, and even though this episode is over, the conversation isn't. Let us know what you thought about wings. Let us know what you thought of the insane aerial action. Did you shed a tear watching this film? What are some of your favorite William Wellman movies, silent or sound? Also, before we head off to the baggage claim, don't forget to fly on over to Instagram and/or Twitter, and let us know what you thought of the episode. What movies do you want us to dive into next? Our silent horizons are constantly being expanded here with this show, and want to know what you think we should cover next. You can all do that at Golden Silence cast on Instagram and at Golden Silence one on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe, rate, review. It helps us like crazy here, and we love hearing your thoughts. We super, super appreciate all of your awesome support, and seeing how much you folks out there are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes for all of you. And one last bit of business before shutting down, just a reminder to head to www.pittsburghsilentfilmsociety.org for all kinds of fun silent film info provided by the Pittsburgh Silent Film Society. The PSFS was started in 2013 to help foster and promote silent film exhibition with live musical accompaniment in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania. To find out more and see upcoming silent film programs or sign up for their upcoming newsletter, just head to their website or find them on Facebook. Whether you're in Pittsburgh or across the world, It's definitely worth checking out. It's a great group. Even if you can't attend the events, there's lots of fun news items and the the upcoming newsletter is going to be a great read. I know that for sure. So definitely give the PSFS uh, a look no matter where you are. It's just, it's amazing to see the support that silent film is gaining that that people still care about this, and whether you're in Pittsburgh or not, give it a listen at Pittsburgh And all that being said, thanks to all of you fine folks for all of your fine listening. And remember, the silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad.